podcast. I'm here today with uh, Chris Rufo. Um, he's got a new book out called America's Cultural uh, Revolution, How the Radical Left Conquered Everything. I mean, if you're watching this on YouTube, you could see his... Chris, why don't you hold up the book so people could see it? It's a very nice cover. Here it is. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's the advantage of having a fa- uh, yeah, fancy publisher. Uh, so yeah, it's it's going to be out. Um, you know, we're recording this on uh, July 11th. Uh, the release date is the um, what's the release date again? The 18th. The 18th. Okay, so by the time this is out, people are the book is going to be out. Um, and Chris, it's great to um, it's great to have you here. I mean, we've talked a little bit. We've talked like on the phone. We've uh, uh, sent messages back and forth. But this is the first time I've you know seen your face and been able to talk. Uh, talk to you. Um, and I just, you know, the first thing I want to ask is like, where did you come from? Um, because like, I think I started noticing you um, 2019, 2020, but you know, I looked into your background and you had been a filmmaker, you had done some other stuff too. Um, so can you give sort of people just like a little, a little summary of like how you got here? Yeah. So yeah, I started my career uh, after I graduated from college as a documentary filmmaker. I produced films, directed films, uh, edited films, uh, was really in the documentary world for more than 10 years. And, you know, the documentary world is its own little artistic and creative ghetto. Um, it's a small industry. It's a prestige economy, meaning that, uh, you know, there's not a lot of, uh, of, of a financial economy in the documentary world. And so um, it's really been captured by all the institutions that we think of as woke today. Um, dating back many, many years. And so I went through my own political transformation during that time, uh, found myself leaning more and more right uh, to the point where I directed a film for PBS that was, um, I guess, conservative in its political orientation. And that was the end of my documentary career. And so around 2019, I made a transition to doing journalism, reporting, some think tank work. um, And then it really picked up in 2020 when I started reporting on critical race theory. Yeah. And what kind of documentaries did you used to make? I did a bunch of different films. I did did some travel films early on. I did a film uh, in China on the Uyghurs. Um, I did a film about kind of athletes up to 100 years old that compete in all the Olympic sports. And then I did a film on American poverty, surveying three of America's poorest cities and trying to kind of tease out some social and political lessons from that experience. Hmm. And so how did you, so how did you make the transition? So you're, you're in, uh, you know, documentary, you're in some social circle, some professional circle when you're making films. Uh, how did you sort of transition into uh, political writing and activism? Yeah, I mean, it really happened, actually. I started reaching out a little bit in political sphere as I was making this, that last movie, and started kind of building a little bit of a network. You know, I went to some conferences. But what really took, uh, took me kind of out of one world and into the next world was uh, the relationship with a guy named Bruce Chapman, who's the founder of Discovery Institute. He worked in the Reagan administration. He ran the Census Bureau, which is kind of an interesting job uh, in the 1980s. And um, he watched an early version of the film that I was directing on American poverty. And he said, hey, you know, I was living in Seattle. His institute is in Seattle. And he said, hey, use your experience, what you've learned about American poverty making this film. And, and I'm going to commission you to write a report on homelessness and homelessness policy in the city of Seattle. And so that initial report that I wrote for Bruce um, really was the first thing that I was able to do that was purely in kind of journalism, policy, think tank world. And then, and then once that came out, um, my documentary kind of cred was burned forever. So I had to sink or swim. I was, you know, something like in my early 30s and said, all right, well, I guess we're going to gear up for a big career transition. So 
um, I plunged in, you know, headfirst and, and, and really started doing this uh, full time. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's amazing. I mean, I think I knew, knew about you before. So, I mean, like, so, you know, I've been interested in, you know, conservative politics forever. I haven't been a public figure for that long. I think I popped up around the same time as you, around 2020. Um, and I remember, you know, uh, like, knowing about civil rights law and, like, all the problems with it back in 2011, 2012, when I was a law student. And I was just sitting around, like, for a decade. Like, I wish somebody would write about this. I wish somebody would talk about this. It's, like, such an easy case to make. I would actually know people who were, like, writers. And they'd be like, you know, this is very interesting. You should write about it. Or, like, you know, when I know somebody. And nobody ever did. And then finally, like, a decade later, it's just like, I do it. I'm like, oh, okay. Like, it should have just been, it should have just been me the whole time. And with you, you know, I think that, like, you came on the scene. And what I was frustrated about um, was just, like, there's so much complaining on the right about like these cultural issues, right? And you just came and you were on TV, you were on, you you went on Fox News and you just said, executive order, ban critical race theory. And it happens, right? It happens within a week, right? And so like, do you just like ever stop to think like, like what have conservatives been doing all this time, right? With all these election victories, all this money, like why did it take so long for them to like focus on these cultural issues? Because, you know, this stuff has been around forever. Yeah, I, I do think about that a lot. And I think there's a, a few problems. One is that you don't get what you want unless you ask for it. That's first and foremost. You know, you say what you want. You ask other people to, to do it, you know, in their self-interest as well as in your interest. Um, you provide them a narrative, evidence, argument, whatever they might need in order to make it successful for them. Um, and then you do it. Uh, I mean, it, it seems in some ways very simple. But I think part of the problem is that the right has come off this hangover from the moral majority days and the, the culture war of the moral majority era, Republican politicians has at this point lost all of its currency. I mean, it, it's basically vanished. I mean, you and I follow this stuff really closely. I can't think of a single person who embodies that kind of argument or that kind of style that has any purchase in modern culture. And so there's a lagging um, uh, the political class is really a lagging indicator of all these trends. And so I, I had a lunch, a uh, congressional breakfast, rather, sitting down with all these Republican congressmen, trying to explain to them critical race theory. And it really hit me. Like, these guys are, are from you know, suburban or exurban red states. You know, they may own a car dealership or some sort of, like, poultry processing plant. I mean, they're old school business, conservative guys, free market guys. And it was very difficult to explain it to them. And they, I, I sensed that there was even a discomfort for them in the discussion and say, oh, wow, we have to rapidly get our politicians to catch up with those of us in the intellectual world or the policy world. Um, and so there's a disconnect as one generation's power and influence wanes and as our generation's power and influence uh, waxes. And so um, I think part of it is a generational, generational question um, and the other part, and, and I think that in, in your experience, you know, looking at 2011 to now, people are scared to talk about these issues. But after George Floyd, after the critical race theory debate, um, which we won resoundingly, in my opinion, um, I think the fear has dissipated and people are very much willing to uh, speak openly about these issues. And then certainly the Supreme Court by, you know, chipping away at affirmative action recently they felt like they had the political and cultural opening to push the boundary there. And so I, I think that is time for 
pushing a lot harder. And I think our book's coming out with the same publisher and the same, you know, roughly the same season. Um, I think it's good. And I hope they both lay down a marker uh, for what's to come. Yeah, yeah, I think about it the the same way. You've talked about the generational differences. It always also seems to me like there's just a um, a sort of class or regional thing. So you look at the left; their intellectuals are like the same people as their politicians, right? They're from the same places. Um, when I you know I, I wrote an essay uh, not that long ago about like things conservatives have won on, and I've been thinking about like like what explains the pattern. So, you know, abortion and guns are the two big ones where like there's been a big change on policy to the right in the last 30, 40 years. And, you know, those are issues that like people in, you know, like religious rural people, you know, tend to care about, right? Uh, like me and you, we, we think, you know, I don't know if you like what your opinion on those things are, but like we think a lot about, you know, universities and like critical race theory, right? And I'm just thinking if you're representing, you know, some rural, rural Georgia district, right? You care about, you know, babies and you care about guns, right? You don't care about critical race. You never see a critical race. You don't care about affirmative action. You're a small business owner, uh, right? You know, you're not Walmart. You're not going through these trainings. So part of it, I think, is just like, it's just sort of the geography and sort of like where people are placed. Um, and yeah, that seems like something we've we've needed to overcome. But I'm I'm glad we're doing it. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It's a town and country problem in some ways. So you have you know conservatives, those of us, you know, I mean, you're in LA. I'm in the Seattle area. Um, you know, a lot of our colleagues are in New York. Um, so we have uh, we're in an interesting position where our political base is quite different uh, in in geography, in de- demographics, even than the conservative intellectual class, which is embedded, for better or for worse, in largely you know, blue areas with blue cultures and blue policies. And so I think it gives us an advantage. We can anticipate and see much earlier than conservative political leaders that are more tied geographically to the political base. Um, but then we have this problem. We have this gap or this chasm even um, between the conservative intellectuals and the conservative political class. And so what I've really tried to do is bridge that gap very consciously, very deliberately, and very strategically. You know, I want to see policy victories. I want to see conservatives uh, achieve power and wield power effectively. Um, And I know that that requires me to do... um, do something, emphasize certain things, de-emphasize other things, speak in a certain way to different uh, audiences on different medium, uh, different media, and and I'm trying to always figure out how I can um, bridge that gap because I want the, you know, my idea of success personally is when my ideas attain power, when my ideas become public policy. And so that's the game that I'm playing, and I'm trying to figure out in a very unique way, very different than our, our colleagues on the left, for the reasons you describe. You know, how does that work? How does a, an idea, um, you know, get written in you know Times New Roman font uh, in, in a legislative, uh, you know, on the legislative website or whatever? You know, that that's kind of the translation that I'm looking for, um, and I've been fortunate enough to to have been successful a number of times recently. Yeah, I mean that's one thing you know I you know admired about you is that like you know you are you know the leftists will take like quotes out of context. Oh, he's just a propagandist. He's giving the game away. Oh, he's just manipulating people. And like no, you're doing look first there are dishonest political actors out there. They're all people who lie and just make things up, right? They're, they're, they are, they are out there. You know, you're not one of them. You, you're, you're grounded in the facts. Um, obviously you're trying to sell your ideas, but without lying to people. And actually, you know, like 
you know, like what a good, what a good marketer or what a good seller does is you connect, you sell it to people in, the, in their own terms and some makes what you're selling seem like something they want because often it is something they want. They just don't know that they want it yet or they don't know that they can benefit from it yet. So it's, it's, you know, you did not invent like, so you didn't invent this, uh, backlash to wokeness. You didn't invent sort of like a lot of America looking at our elites and saying these people. Yeah. Are, I mean, it's ridiculous, right? It's like if I, I'm, I'm, you know, I have a small team in Gig Harbor, Washington. Uh, the idea that I could somehow manufacture uh, mass movements out of my, you know, small, I mean, thank you. I take it as a compliment, even, even though it's not true. I'll extract a compliment out of it. But no, what I was able to do is I was able to synthesize a, a, a feeling in the public report on it and substantiate it in fact, and then create the language and narrative that, that then the public could rally behind and say, oh yeah, this identifies my feeling. And so I, I'm a firm su supply sider in this way. So one of my mentors, George Gilder, often says, you know, politics is also a supply side economy. Political entrepreneurs come up with ideas, they sell them, and then they, they fall or they rise in, in the political marketplace. Um, and so that's the business that we're all in. I'm actually very honest about it in, in, to the point where I will say, hey, here are my strategies. This is what I'm going to try to do. And you can then judge whether I succeed or fail. And so they say, oh, it's propaganda. Um, propaganda, of course, is a word. I mean, they use it in a sense, kind of an anti-Catholic sense. The, the word is originally from Catholic doctrine, the propagation of the faith. Uh, so it's the propagation of the truth, not of lies. Uh, that's a very modernist uh, uh, kind of twist on the word. Um, but in the sense that I'm a propagator of the truth with an interest in making it uh, policy, um, I, I, I'm happy to take that, uh, uh, I'm happy to take that, uh, you know, that charge, uh, you know, right away with no hesitation yeah 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 and when they do you know when they do come after you you know I, i've read you know a couple of the anti-rufo pieces um they don't like you know it's never like here's like some uh you know <laughs> here's some practice of some transgender i just was, li I was listening to your video this morning on uh substack with the the nullification uh what is it called the, the the where they where they give them genitals that are not male or female right is that called nullific yeah. <laughs> nullification yeah. is that the right term how many yep. of these are done by the way do we have any idea the, the the numbers are not uh, clear, but some of the individual practitioners claim that they do a lot of these procedures. Um, you know, in Oregon, the hospital that I profiled, uh, they can actually do two of these castrations per day because they're using robots to perform these uh, trans castrations. I mean, it's like, and, and all of this is publicly funded, by the way. I mean, you know, in Oregon, at least, uh, they're using taxpayer money to build robots to castrate people to create trans identities. I mean, it's like you almost feel like that, that you're being set up and then you look at the documentation, you look at the evidence and then they say it. I mean, it's not, a, it's not hiding it. So, um, and, and I think your point though is that my critics invariably never address the substance of my work and my reporting. They never address all of the reports I did on critical race theory in schools. They just attack me personally. They never grapple with the substance. And so as such, I, I, I feel justified in really dismissing their personal criticism um, because implicit in their argument by being unwilling to engage in the substantive debate, they're conceding defeat because they're not even trying uh, to confront you know, the facts and the real arguments.
Yeah, exactly. So this stuff is indefensible. I mean, you know, the and they won't def- they won't defend, you know, this is crazy critical race theory training. They won't defend, you know, a lot of the the, the trans stuff. You're right. The argument seems to be along the lines of Rufo is a bad actor because he, you know, he's a propagandist or like, you know, the anti-democracy thing, you know, you're doing something undemocratic, like maybe this is a bad thing, but like to do something about it, like we won't be a democracy uh if they do that. Um it's a very let me ask you this. Do you have like hope that like that like there le- like you could reach leftists because you're mostly preaching to the choir, you're talking to fellow conservatives, say, look at this crazy stuff. Hey, Republican politicians do do XYZ. But that makes sense that that would be uh your audience. Uh do you have hope of like winning over leftists to just show them this stuff and say, look, it's actually is crazy? Yeah, well, I mean, yes and no. And and this is something that I've learned I think it's really important. Um one of the lessons that I've learned is that Oftentimes, people will tell you, and even people in politics that should know better, they say, oh, you really need to, um, you know, preach uh, beyond the choir. You need to reach out to leftists. You need to modulate your tone in order to convince the New York Times op-ed page to agree with you. You need to, you know, make sure that your argument is always couched in left liberal therapeutic terms, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But the problem with that is that you are asking people to agree with you that have no interest and no incentive to agree with you, and you're, and you're making your argument um, as a kind of request. You're actually, in some way, kind of on your knees begging them uh, to agree with you. You're, you're, you're framing the debate in their terms, um, which means, to be honest, that you're losing the debate because the, the, the person who sets the frame has a tremendous advantage. And so these, you know, like the David French types, the, the guys who... You know, the conservatives, uh, you know, who appeal to the Atlantic audience in Atlantic audience terms. Look at their records. You know, have they ever successfully moved the needle on any issue, any legislation, any public policy? The answer is almost invariably no. So the question is, well, why is that? What I've found and with critical race theory is a perfect example. This is where I really learned this lesson in practice. The left only responds when you force it into a response. So the first, exa- the first thing is that they ignore it. They say, oh, we're not going to report on critical race. So we're going to hope it blows over. Then we, re- we revved it up into Fox News, where Fox News for about three, four months was just doing CRT wall-to-wall coverage, thousands of stories on CRT. Then the, 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 the New York Times and others said, oh, CRT is a right-wing you know, boogeyman, right-wing um, you know, myth. It's a right-wing uh, propaganda. It's all, it's all a lie. There's no CRT. They denied Then legislators in conservative states started passing laws banning it. Then the New York Times engaged. They invited me on the podcast. They were writing articles denouncing me. They had the whole, the whole apparatus started engaging in the debate. And then when you have them engaged in a debate, then you can actually really fight them, you know, kind of trench by trench, blow by blow, you know, nail by nail. And then you're actually in the political process. And then you're wrestling with the political question and then they lose or you lose. Um, so you actually have then the makings of a binary political choice. And in this case, we won, I think, on CRT definitively, especially in red states. Um, and I think even as a matter of public opinion, we won. But the lesson is that the left only responds when it has to. You can never persuade people on the left by asking them. You can only persuade people on the left by setting the frame, forcing the condition, and then making it so uncomfortable that they have to change their opinion. And then once you create that space, once you create that zone of possibility 
um, that zone of neutrality even, kind of a DMZ, then the center-left liberals will come out like the New York Times has and said, well, actually, maybe DEI trainings are not so good after all. They've published a number of op-eds along those lines. That would have never happened unless we forced the debate at the early stages. And so I always think that you have to actually go with the most aggressive right-wing message. You have to rally your base. You have to force political change. And only then do you have the negotiating leverage to start changing minds in the center. That is, yeah, that's, that's interesting. So I was thinking along the lines of, okay, you have, you know, you say the left does this, the left does that. Usually when people talk like that, you know, I, I tend to think maybe we're, you know, maybe we're, uh, uh, painting with too broad of a brush. Look, I know people who write for the New York Times. You probably do too. Some of them are very sensible people. Some of them are very reasonable people. The Atlantic, all these publications. Um, I think what you're, what you're saying though, and I think that, you know, you've, you've, Give me something to think about. I think this this is probably right. Um, that like, okay, you imagine the left. You imagine they're like half good people, half bad people, whatever, or 70 for 30, whatever, whatever uh, portion you think of, of the New York Times journalists, right? In either direction. It seems like what you're saying is that like the bad faith actors just have a natural advantage on the left. Like if you, ha- if, you're, if you get the New York Times editors and journalists in a room, like the craziest leftists are going to win the argument. Uh, why? I don't know. Because they say, you know, I'm a woman, I'm a black woman, you know, I, I get credibility, whatever, whatever it is. It's just, there's something within the left where the worst people uh, just sort of are able to control institutions. And what you're sort of saying is like play in this other, like, you know, it's like uh, NBA playoffs, like play in the Eastern conference first, you know, play in play in the conservative division, get to the, get to the finals. And then, you're you're in a strong position, and then maybe like these good people can have a little bit more of an influence. Are you are you are you sort of like a helping like the good liberals like become themselves in a way by sort of adopting the strategy? Yes, and I think that it, and it functions really on on in in two ways. One is that you make it so uncomfortable that the distribution of pain and pleasure changes, right? And so, like for example, in in city of Seattle. If you make a critique on homelessness ruining the quality of life or in Los Angeles or in San Francisco from a conservative perspective and it gets enough public support that it starts pushing the center to say, oof, I think actually these conservatives have a better case than the, you know, defund the police people. You shift not only your own territory within your own coalition, the kind of minority minority of conservative uh, voters and public in those places, but you, you create enough of an annexation of the center and center-left liberals that then they have a bit more power to push back against their own flank. Yeah, and, and there's a, another secondary element to that that's, that's kind of entertaining is that what happens as you shift the debate, you put pressure on the center and the center can put pressure on the far left, um, you become the scapegoat um, for the whole kind of ecosystem on that side. And What I found is that um, for conservatives, you have to figure out and you have to really be willing to play the villain uh, in your opponent's own narrative, right? And so there's almost a way in which you can cultivate your own kind of alter ego or your own character in someone else's story. And you can think of it not as your own life or your own, you know, most authentic self because it's... It's a construction of people who fundamentally don't like you. Um, but you can deploy it strategically as, as a method of persuading people, either through kind of repulsion, repelling people, or through attraction, drawing people in. And so um, I think, you know, in, in a way, it's a little bit, uh, uh, you know, 
it's a little weird. It's like a split personality uh, that you have to have. But I actually think ultimately it's something that's quite healthy because um, if you take the press personally, um, the press has a lot of power over you. And I know you're like kind of the, the, the ultimate example because you, you court it in some ways. Um, but if you don't take it personally, you have much greater freedom. Um, and, and, and I think that, you know, you're probably more than most understand, understand what that means. Yeah. <laughs> well, Chris, I'm, yeah, you are, you're courting it in, I think, a very strategic way. I, I think it's funny when people are saying, oh, you're just being, I'm like the least strategic person ever. And I'm just sort of courting it for my own, you know, enjoyment. But yeah, I, th- I think we have that sort of, we have that in common that we're just, we like sort of, you know, we, we, I like, I mean, I like it. I do like sort of. Um, I don't want to say getting people mad, but I, you know, I do sort of, I enjoy it. I mean, I like political debates. I like the campaign season. I like watching Trump, you know, engaging in his, you know, goofy antics, right? Is, is there a little bit of that in you? It's like, you're a little bit of just like, you're here for the, you're a serious person trying to do things, but you're also here for the spectacle. For sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that fundamentally at heart, it's quite a serious enterprise for me, Certainly. And, you know, I think that comes across in the book. Anyone who reads it would understand that immediately. That is a serious thing. But but politics is also a gladiatorial sport. And uh, I, I just find it so bizarre. Some of the, you know, some of even our, our colleagues broadly that are in politics, but don't actually seem to enjoy the theatrics of politics, the drama of politics, the combat of politics. And, and, and to me, um, I, I, I don't see any um, really any division or any contradiction between enjoying politics uh, as sport, drama, uh, combat, and politics as a serious intellectual enterprise. And, and in fact, um, I think the people that I've met that are the best at politics um, have a mastery of both of those domains. And that's something that I really admire. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, I think some people do like sort of, they do like the drama of politics, but they have a different aesthetic sense. So I think about like, uh, you know, when John McCain, um, you know, when John McCain was alive, um, I think he had a sense of like, drama and like enjoying politics, but it wasn't like, it was more of a sign of like, it was more of a kind of like, you know, we're all good people, and we're gonna always have that kumbaya uh, moment at the end of the day. And like it was, it was something. And like we're all going to be friends, right? I think that's like the John McCain thing. Um, and so I think there are some people who are just uh, attracted to like a different kind of aesthetic. I'm curious what you mean by the change in aesthetic sense. Are you speaking basically of the pre-Trump, post-Trump shift in conservative aesthetics, or something different? I think it's more than pre-Trump, post-Trump. I think by the time of the Tea Party, it was more, uh, it was, it had become more combat- combative. Uh, but I, you know, I do think that like there is like an aesthetic of like the establishment. It's not that they are just like people who just want to be like, you know, like this, uh, the CCP and just like going to a room and just like, have a tech- technocracy and not have like any kind of civil culture or like anything that like people get inspired by. I think it's more along the lines of like, we're going to, you know, it's, it's like a sort of a, a Hallmark movie or something like, you know, we're going to go with the Democrats. We're going to work something out. We're going to like overcome the extremists on each side. We're going to overcome bigotry and hate and we're going to hold hands and we're going to have that, you know, kumbaya moment. Now conservatives these days aren't, <laughs> aren't, aren't having that, you know, for, for obvious reasons. Right. Um, but I do think that the aesthetics, it seems to me like the aesthetics, sort of follow the um like the you know the uh the, the sort of prognosis right of what's like going on in the country yeah that's interesting i, I mean post tea party i wonder i mean 
it's hard to trace the difference, but I think that you have to acknowledge the, the, the rupture in aesthetics with Trump. I mean, Trump broke all of the rules of polite discourse. He violated taboos, even on the conservative side, uh, politically. And then I think it was really the first election in which Twitter and social media played a really outsized role. You had Howard Dean, who was raising money. You had Obama, who I think was using, you know, social media and his really charismatic presence. Um, but ultimately, Obama was a televisual character. I mean, he was the soaring oratory, the primetime speeches, the large crowds. Um, you know, there, 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 there wasn't like his tweets weren't, you know, off the cuff, you know, him there on his phone tweeting. And, and, and Trump took it, you know, in some ways, you know, he coarsened it. Um, but in other ways, he made it more authentic and he created some more space for, um, uh, for, for the theater to change. And I think that one of the interesting things that I think about in this question is that for many years, Republicans and Democrats agreed on the basic principles of discourse. Um, you would have, you know, the, all the, all the cable news shows, you'd have, you know, a voice on the left, voice on the right that would debate, um, that's really separated out. There are now two separate rules, two separate realms of discourse. And I do wonder, though, if that is also changing, if 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 there's a way where things are going to start to converge again um, and if left and right can engage. You know, one of the things that was as we were kind of springing onto the scene in 2020, one of the things that still you know actually bothers me in a certain way is that the most prominent left wing intellectuals. Um, uh, I use that term very generously of the George Floyd era were, you know, Robin D'Angelo, Ibram Kendi and Kimberly Crenshaw, you know, very famously, um, Coleman Hughes challenged Ibram Kendi to a debate. Uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali challenged Robin D'Angelo to a debate, um, less famously, but I think j just as uh, on the same parallel construction, I challenged Kimberly Crenshaw to a debate and Joy Reid, um, and those main figures, you know, Crenshaw, Kendi, D'Angelo, never once engaged in a debate. Never once. Um, that, that's something that is, I, I think, you know, whether you're looking at it intellectually or looking at it theatrically, I think is such a disservice to the public that these people are not even willing to engage. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're right. I mean, and, you know, we're, we and you are just old enough, you know, to remember when it was different. I mean, I remember during like the George W. Bush administration, right? Like we used to be taught in school, like, uh, the Nazis would march through Skokie. It was just like a thing in the culture. And like, if someone brought this up, they were usually on the left, right? It was like the Nazis can march through Skokie. We're like, so we're such a country, we're such a culture that is committed to free speech that like, you know, we're, we're, we, we allow that. And like liberals would like use this as like a uh, corner. Like if Bush did something that seemed like anti, you know, anti free speech or, you know, anti freedom, you know, Patriot Act or something like that. It was just, it was so much emphasis on like individual liberty, right? And you're right. I mean, the, the right, the right changed i mean i think some of the some of the populism you know I'm, I'm not a huge fan of um that being said i mean when you when you literally just don't even rhetorically believe in free speech right like maybe the right doesn't completely believe in free speech but like they say they believe in free speech they say they believe in freedom right that's that's like something that's some principle when you're just like when you just come out there and you just say we don't you know we, we don't stand for that anymore what else is there to do what else is there to do than say, you know, you know, F you, we're going to go into our quarter and we're going to plan and we're going to try to overcome you, right? I mean, that's sort of like the basis that holds the country together. 
Yeah, I, I think that's that's right. And obviously, we have legislative protections, constitutional protections, cultural protections. We have um, a decentralization of the media that is greater than it's ever been in American history. And so, at the same time, well, obviously, censorship, collusion between the government and and the uh, social media companies, we obviously oppose that. That's not great. I think we still do have to remember, though, that there is more ability today for individuals to reach an audience, to influence public debate, to get their points across than at any time ever. I mean, even for the two of us, um, you know, Twitter is, I would say, I, I'm almost certain you would agree, the most powerful tool that we have available. And pre-Elon Twitter, I was a little nervous, especially towards the end, that I was going to get, you know, booted or restricted. Um, but, um, and, and, grateful that those fears are no longer, you know, kind of important considerations. But even with that fear, and, and, and even with that old Twitter, it's still better than having to, you know, send a print newsletter um, to, you know, 10,000 people every month or or whatever you'd have to do in the past. And so um, I'm optimistic about it. I'm optimistic. And I'm even optimistic. I, I sense that the left is coming back to the table. I sense that people are opening to debate. And even The Atlantic wrote a piece of criticism about me that was like an implicit compliment that they couldn't say because he knew it was too naughty. It says, you know, my qualified endorsement of Christopher Rufo. And it was 95% qualification, you know, you know, but, but there was 5% of, yeah, maybe this guy has a point. Maybe we should really engage. And so I think there's an opportunity. And what we have to do on the right, though, is always think, how can I use this to advance, you know, our priorities, our principles, our policies? The, the, the great danger of the left-wing media ecosystem is co-optation. To say, ooh, I'm getting, you know, I'm getting love from the Atlantic, therefore I should conform my opinions to the Atlantic. Uh, I mean, you see that over and over. You know exactly who I'm talking about. I'm sure you can think of four or five names immediately. My position is quite different is how can I get, you know, something like, you know, whatever publication, X, Y, and Z, to conform to my opinion. And when they are independently conforming to what I have laid out, you know, a year prior, two years prior, that's kind of when I know I'm doing my job, even if it's unacknowledged. Um, and so that's kind of the game that I like to play. And uh, and, I, and I find the most, uh, you know, the most interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that is, I mean, that is, you know, that is that is beautiful. I mean, I, you know, and like... I think a historical perspective, I, and I, I agree with your, I actually agree with your optimism. You're absolutely right. I mean, I, I read about like, you know, I did a lot of uh, research for my book on uh, civil rights law. I, I went back and I looked at the debates that were going on in the 1970s and the 1980s. You wanted to know like, uh, you know, a, a big uh, major debate in Congress over some aspect of civil rights law. The only thing in the media you'd have is the Washington Post or something. And you'd go to the Washington Post, you'd go to the archives. And it's just like, oh, Reagan wants to do X. NAACP says it's racist. That's like all the information in the world that you had right and like you can see like the conditions under which these people were uh operating in a previous generation i'm very you know i'm not a too hard on you know conservatives in the you know the 80s and well the 90s is a little bit different but where i think i think reagan uh, reagan did you know as much as he could um and they were just in a difficult difficult situation uh back then um and you're right like pre-elon twitter is still better than just like whatever, you know, Taylor Lorenz or whoever, you know, Washington Post writes or whatever ABC says. Um, and so, yeah, I, I am optimistic here, um, just as you are. 
Uh, so, you know, on, on that, I mean, let, let's talk about the book now because, you know, there's so, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by Rufo as a, as a propagandist. I think this is just like an underrated, like sort of feature of your, uh, of your thought and your work. Uh, but the book is, the book is, you know, great too. Um, you know, so it's centered around four, you know, like activist intellectuals, right? You have, uh, uh, uh Marcuse, uh, Angela Davis, um, Derek Bell, um, and, uh, what's that other, what's the, the, the other guy? Paulo Ferreira. Uh, Frera. Okay. Um, and let me ask you this. Would I spend a lot of time reading about someone like I can read about like Stalin or, or Hitler or something? Um, you know, so, like Stalin, I, I can sort of like, like him as a person. Like I could sort of like, just, just, it's hard for me to spend a lot of time with someone and not like them. How did you feel personally? Like reading your book, I did not like these people. Um, did you have any kind of like emotional, like positive feelings to them after spending so much time with them? Yeah, that's funny. I, I, you, you sent that to me uh, earlier in the notes and I found it so interesting. I had the opposite reaction that you did. You know, I spent a lot of time with these four people, you know, reading everything from their main works to their articles and interviews and correspondence and notebooks, you know, these, these, you know, huge volume sets or actually going into the archives at their collected papers and seeing what they were doing. And, you know, I, I actually came away with, um, this kind of, you know, not even a grudging respect, but a, a kind of respect of mutual recognition, uh, you know, at, at least as far as like my own uh, interpretation, feeding back and, 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 and engaging with their work. Um, it felt as if I gained a deeper understanding of these people. And the reason why I spent so much time in the book kind of telling their story, a bit weaving in their biography, is that ultimately these are people, uh, you know, all of whom I think um, were idealists uh, at one point in their lives, and for me, their stories are the story of the modern of the modern left, or maybe the the, the perpetual story of the left is uh, you know idealism and disillusion. And so, uh, I, I understood why they believed what they believed. Um, I, I I I grew to respect them even as intellectuals. I mean, these are all um, very bright people, people that had courage, in some cases, physical courage which I think is admirable, but ultimately their ideology that they had glommed onto was false. It was poisonous. Um, and it destroyed, um, you know, not only, you know, their own, I think, well-being in many cases, um, but actually destroyed, uh, um, elements of society wherever, wherever these ideas touched. And so I look at them as tragic characters and in a tragic character, part of it is some pathos. Part of it is some, uh, emotional bond. And, and there's a genre of conservative book that I really dislike. The sneering, look at these evil people, look at their stupid ideas, look at how bad these folks are, kind of wagging it in your face. I didn't want to do that. Um, I wanted to do something that grappled with these ideas, took these people seriously. Um, and then, you know, I don't even really make, let's say, an explicit argument in most of the book. I just lay out the evidence and it's an implicit narrative argument, but I, I really want not just conservatives, but people in the center, even the center left to read the book and say, oh, wow, I learned something. Obviously, you know, Rufo has an opinion, but I think he treated the subjects fairly and he came down, you know, where he came down with, with good reason and good basis. And so, um, you know, I, 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 I found myself interested. I would love to have spoken with, you know, th three of them are, are, are dead. Angela Davis is still living. I tried to talk to Angela Davis, didn't get anywhere with that. Um, but I, I would love to have talked, have been able to speak with all of these people 
you know, one-on-one. -on -one. I think that would have been really interesting. You know, much more than like, and you'd want to talk with some, you know, I don't know, some, some kind of frivolous personality today. Yeah. Then Ibram Kendi. It's like, would you rather talk with Angela Davis or Ibram Kendi? Yeah. I mean, I do have the, I do have the appreciation. I mean, for the, for the courage thing. Um, Angela Davis had cur the courage of a criminal. I mean, and a lot of these Black Panthers did too. Um, you know, but we, and I, you know, I can appreciate idealism. I can appreciate, you know, you know, wanting to improve the world, but you know, you look back and their arguments you know, are not good. I mean, they should know, you should know by the late 1960s, 1970s that communism doesn't work. You don't need, you know, our, our retrospect, like in 2023. Oh, it was a great idea. No, this was after Stalin. This was after Mao. Um, and you know, this was during Mao, during the cultural revolution. And the information, the information was out there. These were some of the, you know, they were in position to be some of the most well, uh, best informed people in the world. I think there's a, the one, uh, uh, part of the book you talk about when, uh, Angela Davis, it goes to, is it Czechoslovakia or Hungary or something? And they, you know, she's like, she's, could you speak up for some political prisoner? And she's like, no, they all deserve to be, <laughs> to be in jail. She doesn't say exact words like that, but it's basically something like that. Um, and so, you know, is it like, you know, like a communist in, you know, 1880, like, okay, I can get that, you know, in 1970, 1980. I mean, there's got to be something wrong with you, something deeply wrong with you. Don't you agree? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's, that's right. And, and one of the most interesting elements of the book was looking into the kind of writings of these figures during that critical period where the atrocities of the cultural revolution were, were becoming known. Certainly the atrocities of the Soviet Union was well established. And then watching them engage in this furious process of rationalization and denial. And you can just see it. You can feel it in their writing. And they so desperately want to believe. But then what's really interesting is that by 1960, 1972, rather, this whole thing disappears. It vanishes. Nixon wins re-election, 49 states. Angela Davis is kind of sent into marginalia. I mean, she's just like in the, in the, in the side scribbles of the, of the, of the newspaper at the time. Um, she can't get any attention uh, by the time she runs for vice president under the Communist Party USA. There's maybe one or two, you know, minute pieces in the New York Times about her. Um, and Marcuse himself says in 1972, the revolution is over. We've lost. Um, the Panthers have been destroyed. The new left is in shambles. Uh, our, our ideology has been, you know, surpassed by Richard Nixon and the, you know, fascist American state. And so what's really interesting is then they go into hibernation for 50 years and then 2020, it feels like all these old ideas explode into all of our prestige institutions. And so that's really the question that I wanted to answer with the book. How does this go from, you know, the, the kind of, you know, ridiculous, um, uh, absurd, uh, um, um, uh, evil in the, in the case of the Black Panther Party and the Black Liberation Army, they were just assassinating police officers on the side of the road. How did it go from that to totally discredited to in my kid's elementary school classroom in 50 years so suddenly? Um, and to me, that was an interesting question because it wasn't just an intellectual question. It was a practical question of how do ideas gain power? Um, and so that to me was the sustaining interest. You know, I mean, you just wrote a book. It requires a lot of energy, a lot of interest. You have to sustain it over time. To me, that was really the big question is, how do these ideas go from the fringes to the center of American life over a 50-year period without any of us voting on them? They, they, they really achieve power anti-democratically. And um, the answer to that, I think, was the, the bulk of the, 
of the of the research that I did and then the writing that I did for the book. Yeah. And so, you know, one question, I mean, I agree with you that they were, they, they had an influence and you could see sort of, you could see their, their fingerprints all over this DEI stuff and the critical race theory. Absolutely. At the same time, you know, and this is, you know, my, the focus of my book. So I, I think people really should read both books because it is such a, like, this is like, you know, like reading about like how Rome became Christian, but like you need, like, you have like the ideas thing, but then you have like the political thing too. I mean, this is not like something you could just read one book on and understand everything. Um, but there was, you know, there was, a sort of, I think, a continuity with like mainstream civil rights. So if you look back at like the 1960s and 1970s, right, like the court cases, right, there was no critical race theory uh, back then, right? But we get disparate impact in 1971. We get a we get a, a doctor that says anytime you give any test or anything, basically you do uh, to hire people or fire them or promote them or whatever. Uh, if black people don't do well as white people, uh, you're presumably racist, and you as a business are basically guilty of this. You had you know the school busing stuff. You know the history of that. I mean, just crazy stuff, crazy stuff. I mean, kid, they're shipping kids, you know, an hour uh, across town just to achieve racial, you know, equal racial integration, which you know whites didn't want to all go to the same school. Black didn't want to all go to the same schools. They just, you know, force this on commu- local communities. And people looked back and that was crazy. And so, like, it was like in America, you know, we didn't need, and, and you know, the riots in the 1960s and 1970s, you look at some of like the mainstream, like, uh, po- you know, politicians, uh, Democratic politicians. I think it was, it might have been RFK who said, you know, uh, or Hubert Humphrey who said, you know, if I was a young black youth, I would be out there, like, you know, throwing a Molotov cocktail. It was Humphrey or RFK. I'm not sure on that. I don't want to, you know, nobody quote me on that, but it was, it was some major politician. Um, and so, you know, you had this like madness, like already there. Right. Um, and you know, we, the later decades weren't at, weren't as crazy. So I guess the, you know, the question is like, did these, like, was it just like, we needed to, we needed something to justify whatever else was going on or whatever else we were doing. And like these, these like old radicals were just sort of there and we could just grab their ideas off the shelves. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Like how much were they like the movers and how much were they just like, you know, there was this craziness on race and sex and other issues that they just sort of, you know, they filled the void maybe in 2020. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think to try to untangle that as a matter of cause and effect would be difficult. I think it's mutually reinforcing. And I think the dynamic at play is that, and as, as you outlined, so, okay, you know, you have in the early 70s, some of the civil rights interpretations that seem to be, um, you know, in, kind of anticipating the Ibram Kendi style anti-racism, disparate impact, disparate treatment. Um, you know, but Angela Davis made the case for that in the mid to late 1960s. And there's a great speech um, that I quote in the book where she's trying to free some of these absolutely awful prisoners. I mean, these guys that were doing all these horrible crimes, they were murdering prison guards. I mean, these guys were the, the, really the worst of the worst. And she says, well, you know, you know African-Americans make up X part of the population, but they have you know, X part of the prison population. Um, this uh, uh, disparity in the distribution of, of, of punishment means that the system is fundamentally racist and therefore these individuals who almost certainly or in some cases absolutely certainty committed heinous crimes deserve to be free. And so you have a prototype in Angela Davis's language. She represents the radical left position. But then what happens is you have the establishment conforming slowly to Angela Davis and then changing the language, changing the specifics, abstracting it into legal language, and then all of a sudden saying, oh, actually, yeah, disparity in outcomes. OK, maybe the Griggs decision, maybe uh, other elements of civil rights law, maybe the EEOC, uh, you know, bureaucrats need to start enforcing these things and investigating them. So you have this 
this dance between the far left and the establishment left or the institutional left that has existed since the beginning. But what happened in 2020 is you had a moment where all of the guardrails shut down. All of the institutional left's defenses against their left flank disappeared. Um, and then the radical left ideas that, look, the BLM, uh, uh, the leaders of BLM, the women who let lead, lead BLM, um, you know, Angela Davis was their personal mentor. Um, they say they, they have no new ideas. And so I think it represents the political dynamic, the relationship between the radical and the institutional left, but also, cr- very importantly, the, the left's ideology has been frozen in 1968. There is not one single proposal from the left on these issues that wasn't already fully developed in 1968. I'm, I'm 100% uh, uh, committed to that argument because uh, I, I haven't seen anything that really disproves it on these issue sets. And so the left is really totally uncreative. They, they, all, they have to go back to the well of 1968. And as these moments like George Floyd come and go, um, they, they're looking around and they're, they're trying to think, what can we do? Defund the police. Angela Davis was talking about this 50 years ago. It's not a new idea. And so we have continuity. And I think to your point, the institution and the ideology, the elite um, kind of intellect, and then the kind of deadening weight of the bureaucracy mutually reinforce one another. And so if you pair our books together, you're going to get a much more complete view of the progression of these ideas and the changes in our society. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. Yeah. The, I mean, that's one of the things that's sort of, you know, depressing for me. It's like somebody who, you know, people like, well, one of the things I do that I, you know, uh, uh, draw, you know, anger from, you know, people on our side for is I say, no, oh, the media, you know, sometimes it's honest and good. Sometimes, you know, you, you should, you know, you should have like, you should have just take this kind of, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, oppositional, um, attitude towards them on, on everything. But then I look and I see like, you know, I can, you know, read like the Atlantic or New York Times and say, well, this is, you know, uh, yeah, or an academic who does something interesting, right? And like, you know, this is the, you know, I could appreciate that and say, oh, we have these institutions that actually do produce a lot of good stuff. At the same time, the, like, they are just giving in to like the ideology of like, you know, prison, <laughs> prisoners, criminals who just want to commit crime. And like, there's just, there is just, there's no guard. I mean, this is why it has to be conservatism. There's no, you know, reforming liberals from within because like within every liberal institution, it's like, you might think there might be a, you know, a, a smart, you know, uh, Honorable writer at the New York Times who sees things, you know, reasonably, but he's going to get bulldozed. We have, you know, 60, 70 years of these people being literal terrorists, right? Like the weather underground, um, you know, Angel Davis. I mean, and, and these, and they're getting celebrated by like establishment institutions. I mean, it is a, it is a depressing thing. And I mean, this is, this is the, this is the case for why, you know, it has to be conservatives who do this because just the, the, the dynamics on the left, something's broken. And I think any yeah. like, smart, a smart liberal who's looked at the history of the last 50, 60 years has to be able to see that by now. Yeah. Although I would say that there's an interesting wrinkle, an interesting twist that I found in the research and I highlight in the book. Um, the New York Times op-ed page, for example, and the New York Times, you know, even the news sections was very unkind um, to Angela Davis. Um, they were very bitterly critical and dismissive of Herbert Marcuse in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, and then they were uh, absolutely kind of vicious in their condemnation of the weather underground, even into the, even into the early 1980s. You read the, con- the contemporary or the contemporaneous coverage of these people in the Times. The Times was, and, and conservatives, again, would probably not like me saying this, uh, you know, but it's true, so I will say it. Um, 
it was a kind of an establishment or left establishment newspaper that had guardrails at that time. And it's really a deep irony and, 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 and kind of pathetic that the New York Times editorial kind of leadership was unafraid to criticize the people who were literally planting bombs and assassinating police officers. But for a spell in 2020, 2021, they were afraid of people like Taylor Lawrence, you know, uh, who, who, who is like the, the most, the least intimidating person imaginable, unless you are susceptible to elite emotional manipulation um, and kind of, uh, you know, kind of feminine social strategies. You know, I, I mean, it's like, really? You guys were not scared of, of the Black Liberation Army who was sending, you know, pipe bombs to the NYPD? but you're going to bow down to Taylor Lawrence. Give me a break, you know? Um, and so I, I want some of those old salty working class newspaper editors, you know, that are, you know, drinking pails of, 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 you know, margaritas at lunch um, to just dismiss this stuff and get their courage back. But yeah. I don't know if it'll happen. Well, it's, it's so, it's so connected, right? And go to civil rights law. Like you just want to drink margaritas and like be a, be a masculine male at work. That's all that's lawsuit. I mean, it's like, you can't even have like the old kind of thing. And then of course the ideas take over because of, you know, the way the law is, it's just, yeah. So, so reinforcing. Yeah, I, I discovered the same thing. A lot of good New York Times articles, you know, in the sort of history, like when the disparate impact uh, was, you know, the, uh, you know, this came up during the debate over the Civil Rights Act. And then, you know, the, uh, the state of Illinois had like had something like a disparate impact case. And so uh, Washington came up in arms about this. The New York Times ran a piece on it um, and basically, you know, basically uh, with the tilt that this would be absurd to have this kind of standard in the Civil Rights Act. You know, everyone in Congress agrees. They all say, you know, there's going to be no, you know, nothing like a disparate impact. They put in a um, they put in a clause called the Tower Amendment, which basically explicitly defends tests. Which explicitly defends, you know, tests the the professionally what they say are professionally developed. It just ends up not mattering. And then in later decades, the, you know, the New York Times is just, you know, on board with the left, and you know, everything else happens. You're right. There is like a thing where, like, and even if, you know, even if they are like reasonable today, like there is just such a, you know, it's like a slippery slopes aren't like everywhere in society. But it seems like on the left, on race and gender, you're right. Something happened in the 1960s, and we've just been like consistently getting more insane with like you know the fits and starts. But like still, like it just the, the, you know there's something wrong here. So so what's your so like what's your um, I think we agree sort of on the on the history. You know what's your what's your um, so is your idea? You know like I, I guess what I want to say is like we I think you and I we both have ideas about how conservatives, how Republicans can start sort of pushing back on policy, have some ideas on how could this could actually change the culture and actually, you know, we think it's important and it actually does matter. Um, you know, what happens to the, like, let's say me and you win, they do everything Rufo wants, they do everything Hanania wants. Uh, what does the New York Times look like in five or 10 years? Are we, are they with us stomping out critical race, the, the remnants of critical race theory, are we just, have we moved beyond this stuff? You know, maybe I'll take 10, 20 years rather than five or 10. And do we just debate like big, small, big government versus small government? Like, do you have any kind of sort of like vision of like where this, where this is all going to lead to if you're successful? Yeah. I mean, I think that I haven't thought about that question specifically, but you know, kind of spitballing it a little bit, I would say that, um, in in a way, it's actually a kind of return to the the, the mean or a regression to the mean. Um, if you look at the coverage in past decades, I mean, I think in the 1990s and early 2000s, 
these issues were not on the forefront of public discourse. I mean, they really, truly were not. They had been um, kind of suppressed in the interest of, um, you know, a post-communist world, certainly, and then this kind of liberal, small L, liberal consensus. And so the question is, where does the new consensus settle? We're in this period of turmoil. I'm pushing for a maximalist conservative position. I actually think that in, in the next year, um, I'd like to see us push much further. I think we've set something up with CRT where now we can start talking about much deeper and more significant reforms. And, you know, push as hard as you can so when the consensus starts to f f form again, that the baseline of it is in a very different place than it is today. And I'd like to see the, the, the kind of counter-revolution, um, you know, pushing that far left back to the fringes, reducing the status of the far left, um, reducing the influence and prestige, so that that, you know, honest, small liberal that might have gone on, you know, crossfire on CNN in 2003, um, you know, can, 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 can rule again. You know, that, that would be kind of my idea. Um, and then we can be really pushing uh, and, and kind of leading the debate. So what's what's what what is this undemocratic? What are these undemocratic ideas? You said we need to be pushing further. What what what, uh, what do you have in mind? Well, I, I mean, I think as 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 you no doubt have have studied in even greater detail. I mean, we need reform. Uh, I mean, first of all, we need to abolish DEI. We need to uh, eliminate affirmative action in all of our institutions. We need to retool our federal government so that we shut down all funding and programmatic expenditures and, and policies um, that are uh, aligned with critical race theory and radical gender ideology. We need to break up all of the centralized institutions, return power back to states, localities, families. We need to have universal school choice so that families can send their kids to a, a school that reflects and affirms their values, not the values of the, the, the bureaucratic state. Um, and then I think we also need to do, and I'd be curious, you know, what your main takeaways are. We need to have reform to civil rights law. And we need to have a way where colorblind equality is, I think, the goal, but it's also the operative policy so that people are treated equally as individuals. Um, people have uh, equal individual rights. People have due process. Um, and we get rid of any kind of racial spoil system or diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, ideology as the guiding principle of our institutions. And in fact, anyone who adopts those policies is punished under law for violating the principle of colorblind equality. So um, you, maybe you tell me, I mean, what, what, other, what else should we be looking for as far as you know, civil rights reform? No, I, I love, I mean, I love all of that. I love, I love school choice. I mean, I, I, you know, there's people who sort of want to move away for some of the, some of the conservative, pro, you know, program and say, you know, we can't have too much trust. in Like, no, we haven't had enough trust in markets. Like we really, we still have a public education system. We haven't tried the freedom thing yet. So I do love that. I think, you know, I see such exciting things happening uh, at the state level. I hated school growing up, by the way, even before, before uh, CRT and gender ideologies. <laughs> I just think, I just want children to be, to be free, to be able to do things, you know, that are, uh, you know, more so commensurate with their, uh, you know, interests and abilities and sort of human nature. Uh, so that's a great thing. Yeah. Civil rights law. I mean, this stuff, when you look at this stuff, it is really, um, it's low hanging fruit. 
um, in the sense that like Scalia and Clarence Thomas um, have been writing these, and Rehnquist in some cases, uh, have been writing these dissents for uh, years. The, the SFFA v. Harvard, um, you know, Sotomayor pointed, pointed out in uh, the dissent, you know, why are you uh, overruling austere decisis? You know, you're, uh, you're being radical here. It's the exact same. Nothing has changed from Grutter or Gratz or these arguments we've had before. The only difference is you guys are in the majority now and we're in the minority. And she's absolutely right. You look at the, you look at the, um, you look at the Grutter and the Gratz decisions and the, you know, the decisions, the concurrences, the sense, they're saying the same things. The conservatives just happened to be in the majority this time and they were able to do it. Uh, and so there's a lot of things like that. I mean, the disparate impact standard, the idea that everything, you know, you could possibly do is racist. Uh, Scalia and, you know, Thomas have been hitting on, hitting on that for years. It hasn't been like, that directly challenged, but like whenever they get the chance, they would go off on it. I think that's, I think that's in trouble. It's just about being strategic, bringing the right, um, uh, bringing you the right lawsuit. You have the title, that's title seven. You have the title six stuff, which is like schools when you have like the Obama administration, you know, in the last, uh, uh, in the second administration going after schools for like different rates of school discipline. You know, we've got to get to the point. I mean, in uh, the, uh, Dave Bernstein, um, was a professor at uh, GMU law school, uh, says this, we need to have separation of race and state we have separation of um church and state obviously um and it's interesting you know part of my research on um in my book um they thought about doing like affirmative action based on religion like during the nixon administration they were you know they were class they were in the early days they're classifying you know do polls count do italians count are they going to be like their own race are they going to get affirmative action or whatever in the government and so he's like what about what about catholics what about jews there was a big big discussion about, about jews too um and then finally, they said, you know, it's the establish, it's the establishment cl- clause. Uh, it's hard to measure, right? If someone like is not, you know, following their religion anymore or whatever. Um, and they just ended up the Nixon administration ended up cautioning it, saying, no, we're not going to do religion. Um, and now like nobody cares, like are Protestants in jail more than Catholics? Like nobody knows, nobody cares. Like we should be like that with race, white ethnic groups, right? Some are in prison at much higher rates than others. Like we need to get beyond. Uh, caring about this. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think we can get to a point where like, you know, I imagine your typical like red state governor or your typical uh, congressman, just when he sees like any racial classification anywhere in government, you know, he sees red. <laughs> he said, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like if, you know, if the, uh, you know, if the um, Department of Justice was like, um, you know, it's like, I, I envy the, you know, the gun people on this. It's like the um, uh, HHS like wants to study gun violence. They, they, congressmen will say, we'll cut off your funding. We don't even want you to look at this. We know what you're doing here, right? You're calling gun violence a public health issue. This is just, you know, a plot. You shouldn't even be in the, you shouldn't even be in this area. You know, you're trying to, you know, you're trying to push a gun control agenda. It should be just like that for race. From a conservative perspective, there's basically, you know, unless you're distributing funds for like, uh, health research or something, you know, there's no reason to ever know like percentage of black of any program or percentage of white or like who's being disciplined and who these disparities are going to exist they're gonna exist you're not gonna get rid of them um we just have to get to the point where we, we stop caring and i'm, I'm optimistic we'll, we'll get to that point yeah i i am as well and i think we'll get there and what i would even um suggest to you is a paper that really influenced my thinking by heritage foundation scholar named robert rector and he taught he, he does a statistical analysis of the disparities in white and black childhood poverty and he controls for a few key variables he controls for um, I think this is in like early 2000s. He controls for um, mothers' math and verbal ability, uh, mothers' participation in uh, state welfare programs, and, um, and, and then uh, 
you know, mother's essentially relationship to the father of the child. So, so mother's household structure. And, and he found that when you control for those three variables, the entire disparity disappears. It goes down to zero. So I'd like to also see us get to a more sophisticated political conversation where we look at things in a multivariate way. We talk about some of those background variables that are so important and that we, 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 we only measure race when it is absolutely essential. There's a compelling interest to do so. Not this kind of mindless, you know, to the point where you post a picture. I mean, this has happened to me even. You post a picture of you're like hanging out with some of your friends and, and, and there's no, you know, there's no black uh, friend <laughs> present. And then you get lit up like, oh, is this a clan meeting? You know, it's like, <laughs> what is wrong with you people? It's like, these are my buddies. Like, who cares, you know, what yeah. the distribution of races of, of this specific group of friends right now? It's like, we have this like unhealthy um, kind of obsession and it seeps into all of our thinking. Um, and, and I just think it doesn't serve anything. It's, it's, nar- it's actually narcissistic at heart. It's really about your own um, kind of consciousness. You've been warped by, you know, unconscious bias training to just see it everywhere, but it's not actually doing anything to help the people, um, you know, with those background variables that Robert Rector talks about. And so, um, I don't know, is, are we going to get there? Are, are, is the, is the public at large capable of having a debate at that second order level of effects? Probably not. Uh, that's not going to be a, a top line narrative anywhere. Are, is everyone going to read their Thomas Sowell? Um, for sure, no, they're not going to. Um, but, but you know, the more that we can edge the debate in that direction, I think the better we'll all be served. Yeah, I mean, you're you're right. I mean, you can control for these vari- variables. I mean, you would think that, like, if you control for, you know, if you control for IQ, for example, like, blacks at the higher end of the distribution do better than whites, obviously, because they do have the opportunity, plus they have affirmative action, right? It's just that they like these, you know, background variables are not, are not equal. So you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that, like, the problem with, like, okay, we're going to have like a conservative program to like close the racial achievement gap or something is like you're hostage to like what happens when it doesn't work, right? Because like we are like government is not good at like, I don't think there's like a government program now. Like, you know, you can, you can encourage people say like, look, out of wedlock births is bad. Like you should, you know, get married before you have children. You know, you should teach your children not to, you know, uh, not to commit crime. We should have, you know, tough on crime policies. You can make blacks better off and you can make whites better off uh, that way. Um, but it, you know, as long as you're sort of worrying about that disparity, I think that like it's, you're you're sort of hostage. I think we have to get to the point where like there's going to be there's going to be disparities. There's a hundred racial. You could break America down into like you know a hundred, two hundred different racial groups. If all we want to do is talk about like a disparity between this group and that, I mean, we'll have we'll have time for for nothing else. Uh, so I think you're right. I think we should have like that you know discussion like people who want to talk about uh, uh, you know things like the black family and, you know, uh, crime and how that, you know, keeps black people down. I think that those are great things, uh, to talk about at the same time. It should just be like less of a focus on race overall. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's probably true. And, uh, and, and look, I think the other point of optimism and, and one that is important for everyone to understand is that the public is almost, uh, almost entirely with us on these issues. I mean, even in my home state of Washington state and my, my birth state, California, when voters are asked, do you want affirmative action, race-based decision-making in government? They say no. I, and so it's like, even in the most blue, deep blue states, um, we have a public opinion advantage. The problem is, is again, and, and this is something I think about a lot, the problem is that 
public opinion that is not shaped, concentrated, formed, and weaponized um, in, in, in a very clear political program means nothing. Who cares if you have 80% of the public on your side? If you don't operationalize that support into something real, um, you, you know, you're not going to get anywhere. And so I think conservatives are finally ready to say, um, let's push on these issues. People want a colorblind society. People want individual equality. People want due process regardless of your background. People reject a society of DEI bureaucrats micromanaging your speech and behavior in pursuit of quixotic uh, racial uh, utopia. Um, and, and so I think the moment is now. And, I, and I'm so glad that uh, you know, my book and your book are coming out. And uh, I, I really hope that the people who read it are uh, engaged with the information that they need to make the case. And I hope that it has specifically an influence in elite circles, not just conservative elites who, who, who for sure need to know it, they need to dig deeper, um, but also our counterparts on the other side. I, I really wanted to unsettle them. Um, I really wanted to um, create doubts in their mind. I really wanted to drive a wedge uh, between the establishment and the, and the far left. Um, and, and I think if we can start getting that dynamic now, um, we can have some significant results in the years to come. Yeah, I, I endorse all of that. That's that's great. Uh, I uh, you know conscious of your time, Chris, but I did want to talk about um, New College of Florida because I'm I'm fascinated by, by this. DeSantis basically gave you a college to run. Is is, is my understanding of this correct? <laughs> not not exactly. So DeSantis appointed a, a new slate of conservative trustees, uh, of which I am one, uh, and uh, and it's all really heavy hitting. Um, you know scholars and intellectuals and leaders in the conservative movement drawing from all over the country. Um, and he gave us a very simple mission. He said, we want to take over this small, failing, left-wing, social justice public university. We want to um, you know, uh, totally overhaul the programs, abolish DEI, bring in new leadership, recruit new professors, and restore the mission of classical liberal arts education, um, which is coded and unfortunately kind of practically means you're creating a conservative public university because, of course, the progressive left has abandoned the thousand-year tradition of classical liberal uh, higher education. And so what we're doing is quite interesting, and, and I think it's already improved the college dramatically. We're seeing the numbers whether it's budget, facilities, recruitment, um, uh, quality of, of, of professor, we're going to see increase in, in, in the coming months. We're making a better university that's more successful on every practical metric. But more importantly, we're also creating a counterexample um, and we're creating a blueprint for other conservative political leaders to recapture the institutions. You know, one of the things I outlined in my book is the 50-year long march of the institutions. The radical left said, we're going to take over the institutions anti-democratically. We're going to embed our ideology. Um, and then the governor has given us this great gift, this great responsibility um, to reverse the long march to the institutions using democratic political power. And so it's this great uh, experiment. And um, I think that it's already yielding results. We have an incredible president, Richard Corcoran, um, who was the former speaker of the Florida House, the former uh, uh, education board, uh, leader of the, uh, uh, commissioner of education in the state of Florida. He's not only dedicated, uh, uh, to higher education administration, but he has the political skills, the political toughness and the political savvy to get the job done. And so, um, 
you know, we're basically saying that public institutions should reflect the values of the public. And, uh, and for some people, that's too much. Uh, and, and, and for me, I think we're just getting started. How are the uh, students reacting? So I saw some were taking it hard. I saw you were assaulted uh, a day or two ago. I hope you're. I hope you're okay. I hope you're not traumatized. Um, are the students <laughs> uniformly hostile? Are some of them happy? Like what's what's sort of the reaction? There are some students that are very um, uh, happy, but most of the students were very unhappy because this is the kind of social justice ghetto of the Florida university system. That's how it's typically been known. Um, so it's all the most kind of left-wing activist students. Uh, the estimates that I've heard are it's, it's two-thirds female and 50% plus LGBTQ plus. Um, of course. Uh, so the, the demographics and the political ideology is very far left, very ideological. Um, but, you know, I told the students this quite plainly. This is the mission of the university. This is where it's going. Um, I hope that you find a great place here. And if not, you can always... Uh, we'd be happy to help you find another place that's more suitable. So we've had some of the most activist students um, transfer, uh, drop out. Uh, one of the students um, was upset during a, a speech that I gave with Governor DeSantis on campus, um, uh, spit on me. She's now been charged with first-degree battery, or, or they, them, has now been charged with uh, first-degree battery. <laughs> you have to ask, um, what's the biology, I, what's the identity, yeah. Yeah, the biology, female, the, the, the pronouns, uh, uh, plural, um, you know, uh, but, you know, look, and professors are not going to be happy. It's looking like we're going to lose some of the professors. Contracts have not been renewed. Professors have quit. One professor threatened to burn down the campus. Um, he said, <laughs> if I were more patriotic, I'm going to burn down the whole campus. He's gone. Um, you know, so we have a, a, a beautiful self-selection process, a system of incentives that has changed. Um, and, and, and the goal for a lot of these professors is to say, oh, we're leaving and we're going to have our 15 minutes of fame. And, isn't that awful? And my response is good. If you don't agree with classical liberal arts education, you're not aligned with the fundamental mission and vision of the university, you feel like you'd be better off somewhere else, great. Good luck. You know, Don't let the door hit you on the way out. And so um, you're going to see at the end of the summer a new cohort of, um, of really good uh, and, and, and mission-aligned uh, professors coming in. You're going to have a plurality of opinions on campus. You're going to have expertise in, in the kind of classical liberal arts. And I think you're going to see a university that is very different than all of its peers around the country. And, and the, the person who deserves the credit is really Governor DeSantis. And I say that not just because I'm a fan, I'm a supporter. Um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to work with him on these issues, but because he's someone who really understands how institutions work, how power works, um, and how change actually happens in the real world. And so, um, you know, he, he is, um, a really incredible leader of the state of Florida and grateful to be, you know, helping uh, advance his, his mission. Yeah. I mean, I've been watching DeSantis uh, govern in Florida. Um, people sometimes think I don't like DeSantis because I've been hard on the campaign. I don't think the campaign's necessarily been the best run, but when I look back at, um, you know, what he's been doing in Florida, uh, just like really technocratic, getting in the weeds, the accredit, I didn't, you know, it's, I've never like had a politician he goes after the accreditation services. Now, usually I learn about something before the politicians do anything. This is like the only case I can remember, like the politician did something and then I went and then I like read about it. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. He's actually like ahead of me, which is like, it, which is like very interesting. Like, yeah. Giving you, I mean, putting you on the board of a college. I mean, what more, what more could you ask? Um, is there a, he, he's amazing. You, um, I'll tell you an interesting story. You know, I was, uh, I, I was, he, he invited me to give a speech with him, uh, introducing the anti CRT legislation. 
And so we, I show up at the tarmac, you know, in Tallahassee. We get on the governor's uh, plane. We're flying down to, to Central Florida. I have the, my first chance to really talk to him. And kind of one, there's only four, you know, four people in the in, in the aircraft talking to him. And I start with small talk. He's not that interested. Um, and then we start talking business. We start talking about policy. And the guy lights up, and he just goes off. Bop, 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 bop. He's talking about accreditation, about appointments, about the board of governors, about the board of trustees, about uh, how, how the appointments are staggered, about how policy can change, about how to press this lever, about how to get new leadership here. I mean, it, it, I, and I was just stunned. It's like, oh, okay, this guy is a heavy hitter, um, not just on political matters and, and you know, winning votes, but this guy knows how everything works at a deep and detailed level. And that's the moment where I said, okay, this is somebody, if this person gets into the Oval Office, is going to not just symbolically, you know, take a sledgehammer to the bureaucracy, but he's going to actually have the detailed operational knowledge to do something that's lasting and significant. And so that's why I'm excited about what he's doing. And, uh, you know, it, it, it'll be to the wisdom of the voters. But, um, you know, if conservative voters uh, are, are smart and they th- are thinking long term, um, you know, they, they really should support him. I mean, he's, uh, he's a really rare talent and, and, uh, a really rare, uh, intellect, someone of that intellectual caliber being in political office is something you don't see all the time. Yeah. And it's amazing. And it, it came a lot, like you could imagine somebody going and like burning the thing to the ground and then like being voted out like the next election because it was so politically harmful, but to do that stuff and then also make Florida more of a red state. I mean, it is in a, like either one of those alone would be incredible. Like usually those things are cross purposes when you govern in a very right wing way. Usually there's a backlash or something. Yeah. The fact that he did both. I mean, I'm, I'm impressed. You know, you say if Republican voters want someone who's like really, like who, you know, who knows what the, that's what really what they want at this point. But yeah, I think unquestionably you're right. If you're looking for someone who actually wants to, uh, change, you know, the country on these social issues. I mean, the DeSantis is sort of in a league of his own, although other governors and other politicians do seem to be learning. So, um, you know, there's, there's reasons overall to be optimistic. Um, so what's next for you, Chris? Are you going to, um, after, you know, your, your book is coming out, um, a week from now, um, you're going to do a book tour. You're going to be talking about your book. Are you, what's your future college administration, more books? Have you, have you thought about oh, that? God, college administration, dear God, no. <laughs> if I have to sit through another uh, subcommittee meeting, if that's my day to day, uh, no, um, you know, uh, yeah, I, I'd like to write another book. Uh, absolutely. I really enjoyed the process. Um, I'll continue with some of the activism and reporting, obviously, the policy work. And, you know, I, I think, you know, and, and I think you'd appreciate this in particular. Um, I, I'm always trying to develop my own model for the work that I do, both kind of structurally, institutionally, personally, um, you know, commercially, kind of making sure it's a viable model. And so, I'm, I'm releasing some films just starting this week. We're releasing some short films that we're going to be doing once a month. Um, and so, I don't know, experimentation, you know, but, but in the immediate term, this week and next week is going to be book promo. Um, I know that uh, you're probably getting those emails from our, 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 our mutual uh, PR team. Hey, we got stuff coming up for you. And, uh, and I really enjoy it. And I hope that everyone reads it. I hope that people... Um, can see the book, can love the book, can appreciate the book, um, and certainly uh, uh, can buy the book. Uh, and um, I, I think it's hopefully going to be a marker. And then hopefully when your comes out, it'd be a nice compliment and really set a marker for conservative politics in the years to come. 
Yeah, I appreciate that. You said you said um uh you said uh videos. Do you mean like the video like you made on the the trans uh the trans stuff today, or do you mean like going back into the documentary space? A bit of both, yeah. So I'm going to be doing some video essays, so similar to the one that you saw, um, and I'm also going to be doing some documentary content with interviews and footage and that kind of thing. So um, experimenting. Got a great team, you know, working working on this, and this is the first one that is kind of highly produced. And uh, we're going to experiment over the next few months and uh, and see what we can come up with. Awesome. Came back full circle. Left documentary filmmaking because, you know, they're too right wing. And then uh, you come back and you're bigger than them. So that's that's awesome. Chris, I, I really appreciate it. You know, I recommend everyone get the book, um, America's Cultural Revolution. And uh, yeah, I mean, good luck with the promotional tour. Good luck with everything else. Thank you. Good to talk to you. 